Dear God, thanks for this day and thanks for your goodness and we pray that you would bless your word to us now. Lord, that you would just uh, settle our hearts to just, just feast on your word. Lord, what a, what a privilege. And uh, we pray that you'd have your way with us, Lord. Guide us now, please, by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I have to tell you, I often, as one of the things I love about sort of, in a sense, making myself go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is I go through, it causes us, causes me and it causes us as a, as a group to go through passages which we might not necessarily gravitate to. Does that make sense? Right? I mean, we went through Hosea, <laughs> right? And I loved it. I loved the lessons in Hosea, but I wouldn't, like if I was just sitting around like, oh, what are we going to talk about this Sunday? I know. Let's do a series on a guy that takes a harlot for a wife <laughs> twice, <laughs> right? My brain just doesn't do that, right? But it, there's, there's, and all that to say, Hebrews is a little bit like that uh, because it's, it's not necessarily an easy book to read. So if you're, if you're working through it, I appreciate your diligence and uh, I'm acknowledging that it, it's not, it's not the easiest book in the Bible to, to work through and to understand and, and some of the nuances of it. But as, it, as we do that, uh, you know, exercise is not always easy, right? Eating the right thing is not always easy, right? And so, um, and yet those are good things, and um, those are good things, right? Exercise and eating the right thing, good. Um, and so, this is one of those. And so this is one of those chapters, frankly, that's uh, a little bit of work. So sometimes I say that and you say, all right, let's go. And sometimes you say, all right, let's go, right? <laughs> like, would it be awkward if I left right now? Well, we'll watch you. Yeah, we'll just follow you. Want to go? You've had your chance. One, two, three, four exit doors. Five count in this one. All right, good. Okay, Hebrews chapter 6. We've been talking about that Jesus is better than the Old Testament system. Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is better than the Old Testament uh, priests. Jesus is better than, um, you know, all the aspects of Old Testament Judaism, which, you know, some of the, in the first century, there would have been some Old Testament Jews that received Jesus, became what we call Christians, right? And they would have tremendous social pressure to go back and kind of have Jesus plus a little bit of the Old Testament dietary law, plus a little bit of the Old Testament ritual, plus a very high regard for Moses, so much so that you recall the Pharisees, right? Hey, who are you? You know, we have Moses as, as you know, the guy we look to. We have Abraham as our father. And so there's all this sort of... Um, a little bit of a tug of war sometimes in the Jewish mindset of 
you know, is Jesus enough? And is it Jesus plus the Old Testament system? And, and we, as that applies to us, we don't necessarily come out of Judaism. Though some, I mean, there may be some in the room that do. I don't know. But, but by and large, we come out of something, right? We, we often come out of some sort of, um, whether it be, you know, kind of like the Gentile Christians, we come out of just flagrant self-indulgence, Right? to find a relationship with Jesus, and it's a glorious thing to find Jesus to be much better than flagrant self-indulgence, right? And some of us, we come out of uh, religion where I'm just trying to find my security in the fact that I have a lot of, I've built myself sort of this grid of do's and don'ts, of rights and wrongs, and as long as I stay in those rights and outside of, away from the wrongs and all that, and I say enough uh, prayers and a lot of that, then I feel good about myself. And let me just tell you this, to find Jesus enough to come out of that is liberating, is absolutely liberating. I grew up with, (laughs) and then you may be like me, I grew up with both, right? which is pretty awkward, right? Where you're supposed to have all the do's and don'ts all lined up and you kind of have this grid and you choose rather to indulge, to just engage in self-indulgence, right? So it's kind of like I had this background, I had this lifestyle and the Lord uh, just totally delivered me. And I'll never stop being thankful for that. And so the Jewish Christians were under a lot of pressure. And so the whole book of Hebrews is to try to help them understand and, and by extension help us understand that Jesus is all we need. And Jesus is better than any substitute. And any substitute by comparison is infinitely uh, worse. And so that's the, basically the point of the book. So as you, as you may know, we've talked about this before, you know, the original manuscripts didn't have chapter breaks. And so, you know, the original manuscripts didn't have a big six right there at the, you know, on the right side of the page. And it probably wasn't blue like mine. Um, and so the, the idea, the thought that's kind of, we're kind of carrying on from chapter 12, ver- chapter 5, verse 12. Let me just read that. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. And you may recall from last week, he was kind of going off on that whole thing about the priesthood according to Melchizedek, which is honestly a little bit weighty, okay? And... So he's like, yeah, I'm going to talk about this weighty stuff like Melchizedek. Oh, but by the way, I forgot. You guys aren't quite ready for that. You really uh, need milk like a baby rather than solid food like an adult. And uh, everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We need to know the word and use it, right? Use it as we make decisions. Use it as we navigate life. Use it as we navigate relationships. Use it as we navigate finances. Use it in so many, uh, well, really in every aspect of our life. We need to exercise the Word of God. And so what he's saying is, he kind of gives this little parenthetical little um, well, dig, frankly, uh, as to the audience here, weren't quite ready for that Melchizedek because he's got to go back and he's got to kind of uh, got to segue a little bit 
on the fact that they're not really fully mature Christians. And, and you know, we're all on a journey, right, towards maturity. And so he's kind of carrying that idea. And so what he's saying here is he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So he says, okay, let's move forward. Let's move forward. Is that an okay idea? Move forward, right? You think about our Christian life, because our Christian life is not, again, it's not a religion. It's a relationship with God Almighty that's made possible through the person of Jesus Christ and is empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit, right? And, and the relationship that we have with God is a relationship. Now, your relationships, let's say, you, let's say you're married, you have a relationship with your spouse, okay? Generally speaking, that's not a very static thing. Does that make sense? Right? I've told you, before, I think I said in the marriage class, uh, years ago, uh, Tracy and I were in a home study, and a um, topic came up about marriage, and, you know, and I made the comment, yeah, we're pretty much cruising, right? Like, right? Anybody want to know what I learned when I got home that night? Right? Cruise control was broken. I didn't know about that. But I learned. I learned. Oh, did I learn, right? And uh, so, you know, really, the idea of a static relationship is is a bit, you know, let's say I have a, you know, let's say a you know, a friend that I haven't seen in 20 years that, you know, and I have these kinds of friends that I haven't seen in a long time. We get together and it's just like we picked up right where we left off. That's, that's a possible thing. But I'm talking about like, you know, our relationship with God is ongoing. It's, it should be engaging. It should be moving in the right direction. Okay, just like any relationship that we're actively engaged in should be moving in the right direction. So, so um, it's not like we discard the elementary doctrines, right? He says, let's leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. And by the way, then he's going to mention a few of those. Uh, let's leave the elementary discussions of the principles, of, uh, the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, and let's go on to perfection. Really, it's not like perfect, perfect. The word is really like maturity, um, and so let's go on toward maturity and uh, move forward. You know, if we had to go back and let's say we're, we're all talking about here today, right? But let's say I had to go back and say, okay, we need to first learn how to read, right? Well, we would have to probably go back and, you know, we probably couldn't talk about some of these things necessarily or read along with us. We'd have to make some accommodations accordingly, right? And so, you know, we don't want to, ignore the basic principles of the faith, but we need to move on from them. So he, let's talk about some of these that he talks about. First of all, he says, um, the foundation of repentance from dead works. I like the idea that the repentance from dead works is the foundation. That's the starting place. Repentance from dead works. Now, the first, word out of, the first recorded word out of John the Baptist's mouth in the Gospels is repent. Now, Repentance is a word that is not, um, not necessarily culturally sensitive, okay? And I want to be uh, as gracious as I can here, but let me just say this. I, I'm, I'm realizing, that, so I'm, as I engage in sort of society, 
like you guys do, and we all do, and we all kind of navigate, and we all kind of have conversations with people of all different walks of life sometimes, and that sort of thing. And I've noticed there's a word, and do you notice that socially there are buzzwords, right? If you get, uh, if you call somebody that you don't know on their voicemail, and at the end they say, have a blessed day, what does that mean? Code, I'm a Christian, right? We all have our code, code words, right? Well, there's a code word that I've noticed recently, and again, I want to be very sensitive, and I'll just say it out loud uh, because I'm, I'm kind of a believer in transparency, and sometimes uh, it's easier to call out the elephant in the room than to not. Is that all right? The new word is affirm. I just made everybody a little nervous, didn't I? The new word is affirm. Now, and uh, how it comes up is, uh, are we affirming or not? Are we as a church, an affirming church? And I'll just, again, I'll say it out loud. The general context is usually in related to certain lifestyles. Fair enough? Now, here's what I'd say. The foundation of our faith is repentance from dead works. Fair enough? I hope when you walk in that door, you are willing to change. Willing to be molded into Romans chapter 8. We're being molded into the image. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. My goal in life is not to be like I used to be. And I came here hoping to be molded, conformed into the image of Christ. Is that fair? And so I don't, so we need to understand that. And frankly, we need to embrace that. And uh, so are we an affirming church? Well, I would affirm anybody that walks in this door as a human being with all the dignity that is endued to a human being that was created by God and for whom Christ died. I would affirm the dignity of that human being. I would not affirm for anybody of any walk of life to come in and out of here and never be changed. We don't want that, right? That's why we came. Frankly, that's why we came. We came to grow. We came to be molded. We came to be conformed, not into some prescribed plan that I have, but what God has. And so, don't, so we need to be careful not to let sort of social trigger words uh, back us into a corner. Does that make sense? Okay. Everybody okay? Is it hot in here? So, repentance. And let me just say this. Repentance is fundamentally different than remorse. Right? Uh, The night before Jesus died, there were two guys that messed up horrible. Right? Peter messed up horrible. Denied that he even knew Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. Right? Judas 
messed up, horrible, right? Deny Je- or, you know, betray Jesus. Both of them felt bad. One repented, one didn't. There's a difference between feeling bad and feeling repentant. King Saul in the Old Testament, every time, uh, you know, every time David showed himself to be more honorable than Saul, Saul said, oh, David, you're right. I'm so lame. You're so awesome. God is going to, you know, establish your kingdom. and, And, you know, and it just sounded so good. And the next thing you know, he's unchanged. So repentance is really a change of mind, a change of heart that causes a change of direction in our lives, right? And isn't that basically the foundation of our faith? I'm repentant from basically being a life all about me and my wants and my needs and what I think my entitlements are, and I'm being molded, I'm desiring to be molded and conformed into the image of Christ. That's called repentance, right? So that's a pretty sort of foundational principle. He says, let's move on. Let's not lay that aside, or let's not, let's not ignore that, but let's kind of move on from that. That's one. Repentance from dead works. And faith toward God, right? Faith toward God. Question is, or you have faith in, in yourself, or do you have faith in God? Do you, are you obedient to God, or are you obedient to yourself? Because did you notice yourself tells you a lot of things you need? Myself tells me what I got to do. Myself tells me how to, you know, how to take care of it, of myself. There are a lot of things that if I listen to myself uh, and I obey what myself wants, I can go down a certain direction. If I have faith towards God and I obey what God wants, then I go down a different direction. As we've talked in the, as we've talked uh, in the last several weeks, you know, faith is not so much confidence as faith is, is obedience. And so am I obedient to what God wants in my life? of doctrines of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So baptisms, literally the, the, the word means washings. And you've got to keep in mind, so this, is, this, is, uh, this book is written to New Testament Christians like us. It's also written to New Testament Hebrew Christians. And it's written in their context uh, primarily uh, initially. The doctrine of baptisms, the word literally means washings, right? The Jewish people washed like crazy, right? You go to Israel today, and outside every dining room in the restaurant, right, in the hotel, is a big, like, big sink, big oversized sink, almost like a trough, right? Because they got to wash their hands on their way in, right? You got to wash, wash every time you turn around, right? They thought they were made clean by that. Jesus talked to them about that, right? But it's the heart that matters, right? And so, you know, for baptisms, uh, for us, yeah, baptism, we read this last week at a time of baptism, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Baptism is the starting point that we should walk in newness of life. But it's a starting point of laying on of hands, had Old Testament and New Testament connotations. The Old Testament mindset was kind of like the laying on of hands that, you know, the priest would lay his hands on the animal sacrifice, right? And that was, you know, symbolic to them. To us, uh, the laying on of hands we see throughout the scripture, the idea of praying for one another, the idea of commissioning others. Uh, you know, they, they laid hands on, on Paul and Barnabas uh, at, at the church of Antioch there and sent them out, right? And so the idea is that's sort of a basic doctrine. Resurrection of the dead, 
and eternal judgment. Can I tell you this? This is a basic doctrine, right? Is this life all there is? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Is there an eternal heaven and hell? Uh-huh. Is, again, I want to be sensitive. Is there a biblical case for purgatory? No. No. There's heaven and there's hell. Right? There's heaven and there's hell. So resurrection from the dead is real. Heaven and hell is real. Repentance from sin is real. Those are all basic doctrines that he calls the elementary, elementary principles of Christ. And so let's not ignore those, but let's leave the discussion of those because they're basic. We're, so we're moving from milk to, to meat, right? So he says, For it is, and, and now we're going to really go to meat. <laughs> uh, yeah. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to, remove them, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So, that's Hebrews chapter 6. Hope everybody has an awesome Sunday, and we'll see you next week. Right? That is one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. And so, let's tackle it. You okay if we tackle it? Everybody got your gloves on? Right? We're going to tackle this. And so, and again, uh, this calls for uh, a review. If you're, if you're an old-timer, Bear with me. Try not to roll your eyes too bad. Don't groan out loud. But this would call for a great opportunity to talk about what? Anybody? The spectrum. The spectrum. And if you're a new timer, you'd say, what are they talking about? They're talking about the fact that I always talk about a spectrum of God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. Right? Raise your hand if you've not heard me talk about the spectrum of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Okay? Four or five of you. Good, good. That's good. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. My daughter's heard it. What does she know? She wants to buy me a shirt about the, my pastor's voice, right? So, and here's another thing. So, you know, we do have new people. We want to be sensitive to new people. The other thing is I want you to kind of keep in mind, think about this as we do this. We're sort of building, a, in my mind, we're building a Bible teaching library. Does that make sense? Right? It's online. If you want to know what I had to say about Romans chapter 8, you can go look it up. Right? And so there may be times, and I, I do this with different Bible teachers. I'm like, I wonder what he says about this topic. And so I'll go to sort of those, those verses. Does that make sense? And if you're in your mind, do you, raise your hand if you know the biblical reference to the last time I talked about the, do the sovereignty responsibility spectrum. Oh. <laughs> See? Right? And so, in my mind, I think of it like this. This is the ultimate responsibility verse. And so, in your mind, if you're like, I bet he talked about that. I mean, five years from now, you're going to say, I'll bet. I'm reading, Rome, I'm reading Hebrews 6, 
I forget how that got broken down. I bet he talked about that spectrum thing. Right? And in my mind, I even did this. Romans, and if those of you who are familiar with this, you'd know that Romans chapter, anybody want to guess? Eight, nine would talk about this, right? I went back and sure enough, there it was. Talking about it all the time, right? But here's the thing. I think this is so helpful to us. And honestly, it gives, um, I think it gives a place for everybody in the room, okay? As we seek to be conformed into the image of Christ, we're not going to all be conformed in the same way with the same bents and, and all of that, okay? But here's the deal. On one end, there's like a spectrum, I believe, and on one end of the spectrum, God is completely sovereign. Well, what does sovereign mean? That sounds like a $3 word. Well, sovereign means God's in control. God's in control of your life. God's in control of everything from your life to all of human history. Is that true? totally. God even knows from before the foundation of time who's going to wind up in heaven and who's going to wind up in hell. Is that true? And so God so knows that, that because God is outside of space and time and he's outside of our brains, if we're not careful, we can twist that just a little bit to say, well, God just before the foundation of time decided that one's going to heaven, that one's going to hell. You're chosen, you're not. Too bad, so sad for you. And we would look at verses like Romans chapter 9 out of context, frankly. It says, uh, the pot, you know, who's the, who's the, can the clay talk back to the potter, right? Does the potter not have the freedom to make some vessels for honor and some for dishonor, right? You know that verse? That's sovereignty people love that verse. Okay? I don't make light of that verse right? I think God in his foreknowledge knew who would go to heaven, who would go to hell, who would respond to his grace, all right? Is that fair? So God's sovereignty is real. I think you can fall off the cliff on the sovereignty spectrum, okay? And that is uh, basically if you were not, if you were determined from the beginning of time to be destined for hell, oh well, too bad, so sad for you. And if you're not, then you're one of us, and we can never lose our salvation. And um, so there. I literally had a, I had a guy one time, he was, he was one of these folks, um, and I won't go into too much detail. He walked into a horribly, horribly immoral situation, and he would later tell me, uh, the consequences were unfathomable. He would later tell me, you know, I just had this feeling that if God didn't want me to do that, he would have stopped me. Well, guess what? He didn't. Right? That's an abuse of God's sovereignty. There are abuses of so God's sovereignty in our actions. There are abuses of God's sovereignty in our attitudes, right? Like God loves some and God doesn't love others. And so that's the cliff, if you will, of God's sovereignty. Now, if we just come back off of that cliff a little bit, do we like God's sovereignty? Am I saved because of my works or because God's grace? Thank God I'm saved by his grace. So let's, let's, let's love God's sovereignty. Let's embrace God's sovereignty, but let's not fall off the cliff of God's sovereignty. Fair enough? All right, let's go over here. Man's responsibility, right? Is man responsible for his actions? 
If you drive 185 down the highway, down Deputy Pike, right? If you drive 185 down, the, down uh, Rogers Road, straight stretch, for, goes for about two miles, turbocharger kicks in, it's beautiful, right? <laughs> you can do it for a second or two, right? You do it down Deputy Pike, there's a different consequence, right? It's a little uglier, right? We have consequences for our actions? Yeah. And on the other hand, if I, you know, there's some consequences, there are some positive consequences of positive actions. That makes, that's not, that's not, you know, and those of you who heard this, you say, you know, Galatians, I believe, 6, do, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, he's going to reap, right? If he sows to the flesh, he's going to reap corruption, if he slow, sows to the spirit, he's going to reap everlasting life, right? That's an absolute responsibility of man. Now, that seems contradictory to God's sovereignty, right? Wait a minute, you, what you're ta- if you talk over here too much, you sound like I'm responsible for my own salvation. No, I'm not. Somehow I'm responsible for my actions, but somehow God saved me by his grace, and somehow my, God's brain is so much bigger than mine that the two, I don't have to like fit them together in my own brain like a glove. I just have to thank God for this one and thank God for this one. Fair enough? So just like the sovereignty cliff, there's a cliff off of the um, responsibility side. Is that all right? And basically, the cliff looks like this. Number one, uh, man, if I, you know, if I trip up, I'm in trouble, right? Like I'm, uh, um, my friend George Markey, before he died, uh, I wish all of you could have known George Markey. He was a character. And... Uh, he loved to mess with people. You never know these kind of people that are like, he's, he had a great heart. But some people just like to like walk into a group of people, say something that'll fire him up and then just say, see ya, and then just go to lunch, <laughs> right? George was one of those guys. He said, you know, and he went to a very uh, responsibility-oriented college, Bible college. And he says, you know, one time we were in class and I was getting kind of tired of, you know, how the discussion was going. It's one of these discussion-oriented classes. And, and I said, you know, supposing I've served the Lord all my life. And I'm driving down the road one day, and I look over at the side of a road, and I see a beautiful woman over there. I look, and I look twice, and, you know, I, I lust. I stumble into lust. And I look so much that I weave the car off the side of the road and crash, and, and, and I die. Would I go to heaven? He says, you know, they spent the next two hours debating that. <laughs> he would have gone to heaven, and he did, okay? But anyway, and I'll, yeah, anyway. But we can be so, so responsibility-oriented that we don't have the security that God is the God that saved us. And we're all, like, uptight all the time, Right? Like, uh, if I don't do this, I'm going to lose my salvation. If I don't do this, it's, you know, and, and, and if I'm one of those people, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 are my favorite verses. Is that fair enough? If I'm, a, if I'm off the sovereignty cliff, Romans 9 is probably my favorite verse. If I'm off the responsibility cliff, Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6 are my favorite verses. Fair enough? So we need to... Bring these, bring these verses back a little bit, right? Number one, we always interpret Scripture in the context of Scripture. 
Does any of the rest of the Bible tell us that uh, if George Markey is driving down the road and, and uh, looks at a woman lustfully that he loses his salvation? Is there any other scripture that would lead us that way? The right answer is no. Okay. Let me just assure you, the right answer is no. Right? And this one really doesn't either. So it's not like this one contradicts those. This one doesn't either. We just have to understand it in the context of, uh, of the rest of Scripture and in the context of how it's written. So God is fully sovereign. Man is fully responsible. Here's another thing I want to point out about the spectrum that, that I always like to mention. So let's say this is the sovereignty cliff and this is the responsibility cliff. And anywhere in here where our brains are, where our lives are, where our hearts are, is what we'd call a healthy relationship as a Christian. Does that make sense? Now, having said that, we're all at sort of different points on this. You talk to somebody, and they're like, you can tell that they're just a little more wired for God's sovereignty. There's nothing wrong with that. In our own home, we are at different points on the spectrum, and we all, if we understand that, and we can accommodate that, and we're more gracious with one another, and that's, it rolls better, right? And frankly, in the body of Christ, I don't want a church full of people that are like at this exact point on the spectrum, and I call this, the, and this is where we get into trouble theologically, if we say this is the right place on that spectrum, right? They're all what we call reasonable Christian theological points of reference. All right? So, and that allows us to, to function like a body of Christ. Not like a cell of Christ, but like a body of Christ. Okay? And so, that's that. Next time I uh, come to one of these verses and I say, um, I'm going to talk about the spectrum, you can all now roll your eyes in unison. All right? So, this verse... For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Having said that, let me read this again. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, it's impossible for them to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. And so this verse either disagrees with the rest of Scripture, which I don't believe to be true, or it needs to be understood, which I think it probably does. And so what do you say about this? Well, some say this situation is hypothetical, like this is impossible, it can never exist. Well, if it was hypothetical, I don't think God would have put it in the Bible, right? Some say this person was never really saved, right? And, the, and I've heard this actually from sovereignty people on this verse, that um, where it says, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, like they tasted, they didn't really swallow, right? Right, like they just tasted. Look at this. We're talking about a person who was once enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift, having become a partaker of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I think that describes a Christian. Is that fair? I think that's a Christian. And furthermore, to the person that said, 
well, this only refers to taste. The same word is used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, that said Jesus tasted death for everyone. So if we're going to be consistent, then, we got, then in that, if that logic holds up, then Jesus sort of partially uh, tasted death because he didn't swallow death for everyone. Now, that's just frankly blasphemous, right? We wouldn't let our brains go there. So I believe this is talking about a Christian. Well, so Warren Wiersbe, I kind of like what he said about this. Number one, the word for fall away means to fall alongside in a continual way. Okay, doesn't mean like stumble, doesn't mean like George is driving down the road and he looks wrong. It's like a continual falling away. That's number one. Number two, the words for crucify and put where he says, uh, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. In the Greek, these are present participles, all right? Everybody like that? Present participles? Raise your hand if you like present participles. Me neither. But present participles, the, the, the classical languages, the, the use of their verbs is honestly really helpful in sorting some of these things out. It's the idea of I'm continually and I'm deliberately and I'm all the time and I'm not turning back and I'm doing what I want to do and I'm, I'm not falling away. I'm deliberately going the different direction, Right? And as long as I'm doing that, according to these verses, I am outside of the grace of God. So what did you just say? Did you just say you could lose your salvation? I think somehow. And again, and I hope you guys know by now, you've heard me teach long enough, I lean a little on the sovereignty side, all right? But I think to say, well, I could never lose my salvation. So there. I think I'm on shaky ground. I'm going to do whatever I darn well please for the rest of my life. And that's that. And I am the God of my life. And I think I'm going to still go to heaven. Are those people out there? Is it possible to do that? Yeah. Are those people on shaky ground? Yeah. Now, I have some people. Let me just tell you this. I have some people, and, I, and again, I, these things always have to be balanced, right? That's why I'm parking on this a little bit. I understand that. Unfortunately, this verse is used too often to guilt people. To guilt, you know, you better be careful. You better be careful because if you stumble and fall, you might slip off the cliff and lose your salvation. And it's been used to guilt people, right? And it's like a fear-based tactic. Does that make sense? I saw a billboard not long ago. It said, where will you spend eternity? You know, forever is a long time to be wrong. Now, let me just ask you this. What is the motivator if I say that to you? If I say, where will you spend eternity? You know, forever is a long time to be wrong. What's the motivator behind that? Starts with F, rhymes with dear. Fear. Sorry, I couldn't hear you. I'm, I am 61. Couldn't hear you over the thing. 
Fear. Right. Huh? <laughs> fear. Does God motivate us by fear? Or is it the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, the Bible says? It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. God doesn't motivate us by fear. Don't, don't go to this verse and say, ah. Don't do that, right? You love the Lord? Then don't worry about it. Then don't worry about it. Then don't worry about it. Are we all struggling with something? We're all struggling with something, with stuff, right? We all have things that we struggle with. We all have things that we want God to chip away the rough edges. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. We all have those things, right? Don't, don't let your brain go into those things. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, don't worry about stumbling off the responsibility cliff. And don't, please, because you'll hear this, don't let other hyper-responsibility-minded people, even if they identify themselves as a sovereignty pe person, which is a whole other story, don't let hyper-responsibility-minded people use this passage to guilt you or to scare you into faithfulness of serving God. Because that doesn't work. I can't be scared enough to faithfully serve God. You know what causes me to faithfully serve God for the rest of my life? The power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Not guilt, not fear. And when these verses are taken out of context, usually the heart behind it is guilt or fear. Everybody okay with that? You want to go through that again? Verse 7. For the earth drinks in the rain and that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it, is, if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So what's the point? The point is our hearts, our lives are, are designed just like dirt. The purpose of dirt is to bear fruit and not to bear thorns. The purpose of our lives is to bear fruit that gives glory to God. And so as we do that, yeah, don't, don't deliberately walk away and think that you're secure. But the truth is, our lives should be bearing fruit. And as God works in our lives, it's he that works in us, Philippians chapter 2. It is he that works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Let him do that, that work in our lives, and he's going to bring, uh, bring out the fruit that, that he wants. But, verse 9, beloved... We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Now, here's another important point I want to make about these spectrums. Whenever we talk about, can you lose your salvation, let's just say. My question is, why are we talking about that? I don't intend to do it. And we're talking about it theologically because people might want to argue this with you, but in my life, I'm not worried about losing my salvation because I don't plan on doing that I'm going to live my own life thing, right? So I'm not worried about it. So he says, for you, but beloved, for us, concerning you, 
Let's talk about better things. We're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. <coughs> Though we speak in this manner, we're going, to t we're going to acknowledge these things, but these are hypothetical things. And usually whenever you, talk, whenever you in get into a discussion with somebody, usually it's a debate where they're talking about <coughs> some, whether or not somebody can lose their salvation or who's saved or who's not saved and I don't think they're saved because I see they still do this and, and you know all of that salvation is of the Lord he decides that he decides who's saved and who's not and honestly there may be some surprises when we all get to heaven right but that's his business as for me I just don't plan on deliberately, willfully, continually walking away defiantly for the rest of my life. I don't plan on doing that. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so what he's saying here is, as Christians, we're not the people described in verses 4 through 6. And so we shouldn't be worried about that. And as a matter of fact, because we're, because we're saved by grace, because we're motivated by the Holy Spirit, because we're driven by the grace of God, we should therefore be diligent. We should therefore not become sluggish in our relationship with God. We want the abundant life, the promised land life we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, right? There's the desert Christian life. It's still a Christian life. But there's also the promised land Christian life, the abundant Christian life, the victorious Christian life. That's the one we want. And so we should be diligent to live those lives. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now, this is another one that's uh, a little bit tough, but you've got to keep in mind, uh, the writer here is talking to Hebrews, right? Uh, Hebrews that have become Christians. So who, if you're a Hebrew, you know, one of your champions is Moses. The other of your champions is Abraham, right? So you like to talk about Abraham, right? So the writer here takes him back to, to uh, the promises made to Abraham. Flip back, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 12. Starting in verse 1. Everybody there? Now, the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country. This one, his name was Abram. God later changed his name to Abraham. Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God made this initial promise to Abraham. Okay, now there's a couple things we need to carry away from this. Number one, he's talking about not just Abraham, but the nation that would come from Abraham, right? And he's specifically talking about the Jewish people. Fair enough? And he says, in you, 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The only way that that could apply is meaning that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Savior of all humanity, would come from the line of Abraham. Did that happen? Yes. Check the box. That happened. Was Abraham blessed? Yes. Check the box. I will make you a great nation. Did that happen? Yes. Check the box. Right? I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. Is that relevant for today? Yes. Check the box. Right? This has played out so many times throughout history that the friend of the Jewish people is blessed by God. The person, who, or the, the person or nation that curses the Jewish people is not blessed by God. Simple, straight up, Genesis chapter 12, foreign policy. Right? That was a side note. No extra charge. God made this promise to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, right? Well, so Abe says, cool. What does that mean? <laughs> right? I mean, it's still being played out, right? Is Abraham dead? Yeah, he's dead. Abraham's dead, by the way, right? I mean, I give you enough trick questions. They're not all trick questions, right? So go to Genesis chapter 22. You know, a lot's happened by this time. There's been a famine. In, you know, Abraham said, hey, God, you know, God says, hey, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham's like, cool, that means I can just go fishing for the rest of my life, right? Nope, you know, easy street, right? That's what blessing means, right? Easy street, big fat 401k, no stress. Family is perfect. You're, there's a, anyway, I won't, uh, there's a stupid video that my kids like to watch that, that you know, where they say, yeah, you're blessed. Your family's perfect. Your kids are perfect. You're, you know, your cancer's gone. You're this, you're that. Everything's, oh, praise the Lord, right? Well, that's not what it means, right? Genesis 22, by this time, there's been a famine in the land. Abraham's gone down to Egypt. He's made some pretty glaring mistakes. Uh, he had to lie to the, to the folks in Egypt and got in trouble over that about his wife. There's been, uh, you know, he got his wires crossed about the family and nation thing. So next thing you know, there's Ishmael. By this time, Ishmael's been born, and, and he's mocking the second son, which is Isaac. And, and now finally, God says, I'll tell you what, take Isaac, your son, and, and take him up on the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. You ever feel sometimes like that's what happens after God says, I'm going to bless you? Right? Oh, yeah, I'm going to bless you. But, oh, by the way, there's a famine and, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, baggage with the Egyptians and, you know, Hagar and that whole thing. And Hagar and, yeah, and you got two wives and or you got a wife and a concubine. They're, they don't get along with each other. Go figure. And you got two sons born by each of them and they don't get along and go figure. And yeah, yeah, it gets complicated, right? Doesn't mean life's not complicated. But by this time now, Abraham has uh, been told by God to sacrifice his son. He goes up. You know the story. He, uh, he's willing to do it. And at the last minute, God says, Abraham, stop. 
And Abraham somehow by faith knew that God was going to fix this dilemma because he told the servants, hey, you guys stay here. Me and Isaac are going to go forward. And we, he says, will come back. So Abraham didn't know how it was going to happen, but he knew somehow God was going to deliver. And sure enough, God did. And Abraham says, um, uh, verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, you have not withheld your son, your only son. Does mean his only only. It means his set-apart son, uh, the one, the son of the promise. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So once you see the idea here, we'll go back to Hebrews, but the idea here is God, God gave Abraham a word in chapter 12, and he gave him another one in chapter 22 with a lot of intervening events between the two. Fair enough? So back to Hebrews chapter 6. It says, when God made the promise, verse 13, to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. That's what we just read. And so, after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And so, the idea is that Abraham had patiently endured through all these life struggles, and then God delivers the promise, uh, sort of the confirmation of the promise. And Sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's a gap between God says, I'm going to do something, and God does the something. Or even, I'm going to do something, and God kind of gives you a little reminder again later, I'm going to do the something, right? There's a gap there, and there's life happens there. Um, notice the idea also says when God made a promise to Abraham, he could, he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself. Right? When we swear, well, in, the, in the Old Testament context, when you would swear or take an oath or something like that, you'd swear by something greater than yourself, right? I mean, we see that sort of today, right? I swear on a stack of Bibles, we'll say, right? You probably shouldn't say that, but we tend to do that, right? That kind of thing. I swear by on my mother's grave, right? Something more honorable necessarily than me. Now, people have these figures of speech, right? And so the idea here is God has got nothing better or greater than himself. So it says, he swears by himself. And the, the, the swearing was the swearing of blessing to Abraham. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is, then, is for them an end of all dispute. And so the idea here is that God, God made uh, the oath in chapter 22, the confirmation of the promise that he made in chapter 12. And so, you know, the oath for confirmation, it was for confirmation of what he'd said back in 20, uh, chapter 12. So we have the promise in chapter 12 and the oath of confirmation in chapter 22, and uh, that allows it to end all dispute, right? And so that was to the Jewish mind again. Thus God, verse 17, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. Notice this. What does immutability mean? It means God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't lie. Of his counsel, 
confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Is it impossible for God to lie? Yes, it's impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So there's a little bit of a mouthful there. Let me go there for just a second. Okay. And so the idea here is that God gives the promise to Abraham in chapter 12 and he confirms it with an oath in chapter 22. These are the two immutable things because God cannot lie. God said it twice and God can't lie. He couldn't lie either time, but he said it twice for confirmation. And uh, those are two immutable things. The thing for us is, look at this in verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to who? The heirs of promise. Notice this, the heirs of promise. So now we're not talking necessarily about Jewish people only. We're talking about all of us, right? Hey, God is saying, by the fact that I gave a word to Abraham and by the fact that I gave a confirmation, a, a sort of a second word of Abraham, and so that there should be no disputing, even though there's lots of life that happened in there, and Abraham endured lots of life that happened in there in between, and, and the promise was, was sure, it was confirmed, God cannot lie, and oh, by the way, this applies to the heirs of promise. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 says, and if you are Christ's, and if we're Christ's, then you are heirs according to the promise. Heirs of Abraham's promise. And so the promise that came to Abraham, what, basically what it means, what is it? In you, all the nations of the, uh, all the families of the earth should be blessed, right? And we are blessed through Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. Make sense? And he breaks it down a little bit more through the book of Galatians. Uh, we won't go through that in the interest of time. And he goes on, he says, this, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Now, I like this, and I wanted to, this is why I wanted to do the whole chapter today. It's interesting that this is the chapter that is so often used by hyper-responsible people to uh, guilt us or scare us, right? But I like that the chapter concludes by saying, this hope we have as an anchor. We have this hope as an anchor, right? Remember chapter two, we said, be careful, be, be diligent so that you don't, what? Drift away, remember we talked about that, right? The anchor serves as an anchor. It keeps us from drifting away. What is the anchor? The anchor is God doesn't lie, God keeps his word, God kept his word to Abraham, and guess what? He's going to keep his word to us. And guess what? Through Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, all nations, all people who would receive him, who would be the heirs of, of promise, if you are Christ, then you are the heirs according to the promise. To all those people, we have that anchor, and his name is Jesus. And it's just a beautiful picture of how God pulls all this together, all the way from Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, all the way through, you know, you got all these basic doctrines and, and some of them can be taken out of context or misused or use social trigger words or, or use uh, religious trigger words or whatever like that. And they all, but at the end of the day, we got the fact that God doesn't lie. God keeps his word. God kept his word to Abraham. He keeps his word to us. And that is our anchor. 
and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of our old friend Melchizedek, <laughs> right? And so he, he gets this final transition. Chapter 7, he's going to talk more about Melchizedek. This chapter 6 was sort of that break between a little bit of Melchizedek and chapter 7 is going to be more Melchizedek. But he, in this, he goes to this beautiful explanation with Abraham and uh, with all of that. And the idea here is, he says, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Keep in mind to the Jewish context, the Jewish mindset, right? The veil was the, the four-inch thick curtain, right, that separated the holy place in the temple from the holy of holies in the temple. And in the holy of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And to them, that was the, that was the embodiment. I mean, God is everywhere, right? God is omnipresent. But that was the, that was the embodiment of the very presence of God, right? And the idea in the Jewish mindset was, you know, only the high priest can go in there and only once a year on the Day of Atonement can anybody go in that Holy of Holies and he has to go through that curtain and, and that's, a, that's a super sacred, I mean, off the graph, sacred thing in the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, you know the story, the temple was, was torn, a four-inch thick curtain, torn, from top to bottom. Why, top, why, does it speci- why does God give us the detail top to bottom? Because if it was from bottom to top, maybe a, maybe a real strong man could have done that, right? But no, from top to bottom, God did it. And what did, that, what did that signify? It signified God's presence, God's access is unhindered because of Jesus Christ. That is our anchor. It's the hope, not the hope like, oh, I hope it's going to work out. No, the hope that we stand on, the anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, the presence of God, where the forerunner has entered us, entered for us, even Jesus. He took care of that, having become high priest forever for us, right? High priest forever means Jesus Christ is our access to God the Father right? According to the order of Melchizedek. You guys want me to explain about Melchizedek? We could just go on into chapter 7. God wants us to see his grace through Jesus Christ as our anchor. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6, right? We don't need to worry about falling off the, res- the responsibility cliff. Please, 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 don't let anybody guilt you into that. Don't let anybody scare you into that. Please, please, please. That is, when it's used in that way, it's completely out of context with the rest of Scripture. And we have, instead, the anchor of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. For your goodness. Thank you that you are sure. You're steadfast. You confirm your word. You don't lie. All of these, all of these references to remind us of our security in you. Lord, that you are the anchor of our souls. And Lord, we are thankful for it. We recognize our tendency to drift. We recognize our capacity to drift. And Lord, we, we appreciate and acknowledge 
you being our anchor. And so, Lord, we ask that we would just be diligent to hold on to that anchor, to be steadfast, immovable, knowing that our, our labor is not in vain as we serve you. So thank you for your word. Have your way with us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week. If you're available tonight, 6 o'clock, prayer time.